We read the Word of God this afternoon in Genesis chapter 3. Last Sunday, we heard the exposition of the first six verses concerning the original sin and the fall of man into sin. And today we're going to consider verses 7 through 13, man's flight from God. So that will be the text. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And now begins our text for today, verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, And hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife 
did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, after man fell into sin in the beginning, man fled from God into the garden. Before the fall of man into sin, man never fled from God. Adam and Eve loved to be with God. They loved the presence of God. They delighted to hear the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as we read in our text in verse 8, which describes the essence of the life that God and man lived together in the Garden of Eden. God would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, that is, In that part of the day when a gentle breeze blew through the trees of the garden, the most pleasant time of the day, that's when God would walk with Adam and Eve in pleasant fellowship, and they loved it. And they were always happy when God was near. But now they have fallen. They have disobeyed the one command that he gave to them. They have sinned against him. And now that they have fallen into sin, it seems that they cannot get far enough away from God. They are fleeing from God. They are running away from God. And ever since the fall, man has continued to run away from God with all of his might and all of his energy. Man does not want to be in the presence of God Anymore, man tries to escape from God, but unsuccessfully. One thing that is interesting when we read this passage is that God did not immediately rescue Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. He did not immediately come and save them by his grace and mercy as he ultimately intended to do. But he allowed them to flee from him. He allowed a certain time to take place in which they would attempt to escape from him. And he did that for a reason. Now, Abraham Kuyper was a great Dutch Reformed theologian, and he believed and taught that immediately after man fell into sin, God intervened by his grace. But Abraham Kuyper called that his common grace in distinction from his particular grace. Kuyper's view was that if God had not intervened at the very moment of the fall, then Adam and Eve would have degenerated into animals. They would have become beasts. And Abraham Kuyper said that God bestowed 
his common grace upon them at that moment to preserve them as human beings who were still able to do some good. So that by that teaching, Kuiper ultimately denied the truth of total depravity. Although he did teach total depravity, he denied that there was ever a totally depraved person because at the very moment when man fell, according to Kuiper, God preserved him by his common grace so that he was still able to do some good. But if you read the passage, you don't find that here. And you don't find that in the rest of Scripture either. What you find is that Adam and Eve sinned, they fell into sin, they disobeyed God, and what do they do? They try to cover up their sin, they try to hide from God, they start to blame each other. We don't see any evidence of grace. Not yet, not immediately. God did not immediately reach down with his grace to save them. And by the way, there's only one kind of grace, and that's saving grace. We don't find that right away in the narrative, but we find that God allows them, by his sovereign decree, to walk in their sin for a time. God did that in order to show them how great their sin and misery was. God does that in our lives too. God wants us to see and to know how great our sins and miseries are. He allows us sometimes to try to cover up our sins, to hide from him, to blame others for our sins. Only then he breaks us down, he humbles us, he works in us a contrite spirit of repentance. And in that way, God shows us how great is his grace and mercy to redeem such sinners as we are. So let's consider the text under the theme, In the Beginning, that's our general theme for this series. And now, today, man flees from God. Notice, first of all, that they covered themselves with fig leaves. Secondly, they hid themselves among the trees. And thirdly, they shifted the blame for their sin. In verse 7 of our text, we read, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. When we read in the text that the eyes of them both were opened, we cannot help but remember what the serpent said to Eve in the previous text we considered. Remember that? What did the serpent say to Eve? He said in verse 4, You will not surely die if you eat the fruit of that tree, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And we saw that what that means literally in the Hebrew is he was tempting Eve with the prospect of having her eyes open to a whole new world of human experience as a god. In other words, that by eating that fruit, she would then open her eyes and suddenly she would know herself to be a god. She would have divine power, divine knowledge, divine wisdom, truly an eye-opening experience that would be if that came true. And we see there that the devil always promises things that he doesn't deliver. 
The devil is a liar. In all of his temptations, he's a liar. Sin is deceptive. Doesn't sin always promise to give us what it doesn't intend to deliver? Sin always says, if you follow me, then you will find happiness. If you follow me, you will find pleasure. If you follow me, your eyes will be opened to all kinds of wonderful experiences. But then we follow, and it's not true. All that sin gives is sorrow. All that sin brings is death. All that sin does is destroy and leave us miserable. Now Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, and it was indeed an eye-opening experience, but not in the way the devil had promised. When the text in verse 7 says, the eyes of them both were opened, the idea is that when they opened their eyes after eating that fruit, they were not gods, they were still humans, but now they had entered into a whole new world of human experience. Yes, because the eyes of their consciences were opened for the first time. They knew that they were naked, the text says. That's the language of the conscience. Suddenly their conscience was telling them, you are naked, naked and exposed. You are a sinner. Remember, before they fell into sin, we were told that when God created Adam and brought Eve, his wife, to him, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They walked together hand in hand in the Garden of Eden and they never once realized that they were naked. They never thought of their nakedness as a bad thing, as a shameful thing. But now, having eaten the fruit, their eyes were opened and they realized for the first time that they were naked. That is, they realized that they were sinners. They felt naked and ashamed. What that means, certainly in the first place, is that Adam and Eve now looked at each other and saw that each other was naked. And they realized then their own nakedness as well. And knowing themselves, suddenly, that they were sinners... Each of them knew within their own heart, I am a sinner, I am depraved, I am selfish, proud, carnal, obstinate, pleasure, crazy. And they looked at each other and they knew that was true of their spouse as well. And now they realized their spouse was looking at their naked body with new eyes, sinful, depraved, selfish eyes. And they suddenly felt very exposed very ashamed. But there's a second reason and a second explanation of that. And this is the more important one. They knew that they were naked means they knew that they were naked before the eyes of God. They felt exposed. They felt vulnerable before the eyes of God. They knew themselves now to be sinners. They knew that they had broken his command. And they knew what God had threatened. They remembered that God had said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. They had eaten that fruit. They had not become gods. Now they knew. God is going to punish us. We are dead. We deserve to die. They felt naked and exposed before God. What a terrible, eye-opening experience. 
It reminds me of what we read in Hebrews 4, verse 13. There the apostle writes, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Hebrews 10, verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Truly, they were terrified in their nakedness before the holy and righteous God. So what did they do? We ask not yet what should they have done, but what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. That's what they did. They went back into the garden and they looked for fig trees. There were all different kinds of trees in the garden. For some reason, they chose the fig tree. I'm not exactly sure why. But those leaves must have been such leaves that they were easy to string together, to sew together. So they picked a whole bunch of those leaves and they knit them all together into a simple outfit which they could then wrap around themselves to cover their nakedness. And in this way, they were attempting to hide or to shield themselves from God. In his commentary on this text, John Kelvin writes the following, There is none of us who does not smile at their folly, since certainly it was ridiculous to place such a covering before the eyes of God. In the meanwhile, Kelvin says, we are all infected with the same disease. For indeed, we tremble and are covered with shame at the first compunctions of conscience. But self-indulgence soon steals in and induces us to resort to trifles, as if it were an easy thing to delude God. Indeed, when we read this passage, our first response and thought is to smile at their folly, that they are attempting to cover themselves from the eyes of God with a fig leaf outfit. How silly and foolish that was. But the only reason that we really think of it as silly and foolish is because it was the first attempt to do this. It was a very primitive attempt to try to cover oneself from the eyes of God. They didn't know what to do in their confusion and in their folly. They were terrified. This was the first thought they had. But since that time, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have been trying all different attempts to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness from the searching eyes of God. Think of all of the attempts that have been made by heathen people in their heathen religions. You could argue that all heathen religions are attempts of fallen sinful man to cover themselves with fig leaves, to cover their nakedness and their sin from the searching eyes of the God they know is there, attempts to appease the holy and angry God whom they know will punish them for their sins. Think of all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices and offerings. Think of their chantings and their charms, their magic, their offerings, their prayers, their cuttings of themselves. 
their self-punishments. All of these are attempts of sinful man to cover himself with fig leaves. Now the teachers of common grace who follow in the footsteps of Abraham Kuyper that we mentioned, they believe that God has bestowed common grace on heathen men so that the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, in all of their religion, we can see there the evidence of God's grace because we see the heathen people searching after God, they say. They're searching after God. They're trying to please God. But is that what we really see when we look at heathen religions? What we actually see when we look at those religions is that man is trying to do something by his own work, his own effort, to cover his sins and to make God happy. That's what heathen religions are doing. They are not searching after God. They are fleeing from God. They are not trying to please God. They are trying to hide from God. They are trying to escape from God. They know that God is there, and they are terrified of him. And they think and hope that by their own efforts, they can escape the punishment they deserve. And we who are Christians do the very same things. Because although we are Christians, we are regenerated, and we have a new man, we still have an old man of sin that we received from Adam. And therefore, we often act just like Adam as well. How often do we try to cover ourselves with fig leaves? How often do we attempt foolish things, ridiculous things, to try to cover our nakedness from the searching eye of the holy and righteous God? We do. Even we who are members of a Reformed church, we try to do things to appease his wrath. We try to do things to escape his punishment in day-to-day living. We may know and confess and have the conviction that when it comes to everlasting hell or heaven, there's nothing we can do. But when it comes to daily experience and living, we often think there is something we can do to escape God's searching eye. And we fall for the lie that evil deeds can be covered up with good deeds. That we can purge past sins if we just work harder to please God. That if we do some ritual, if we go through some procedure, if we make some prayer or some vow or do some good deed, then maybe God will not care about that terrible thing I just did. Maybe God will look the other way because of what I have done. I've hidden myself with fig leaves. We're falling for the very same thing that Adam and Eve did. And how vain and foolish that is, but we all do it. We all do it. Sometimes we might not even realize that we're doing it. But what we're doing is trying to atone for our sins, trying to cancel out the bad things we did by doing some good things. It doesn't work. It's vain. It's foolish. It's no different than Adam and Eve with their fig leaf aprons. Our Belgic Confession teaches us in Article 23... We ought never to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours 
relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in him. Faith, the Belgic Confession says, by faith in Christ. That's the only means by which our sins can be covered. Only when we believe in him, this is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread without following the example of our first father, Adam, who trembling attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And verily, if we should appear before God, relying on ourselves or on any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed. That's the Belgic Confession, Article 23. There you can see the confession refers to this very event and says, let's not follow the example of our first father who trembling attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. Confession says if we try to do that, Alas, we will be consumed. There's only one way of salvation. Believe in Christ crucified. But Adam and Eve did not yet know Christ or him crucified at this time. They did not yet put their trust in the Christ who was to come. But they were fleeing from God. And God was letting them flee for a time to show them their folly, to show them how lost they were to bring them back to himself. In the second place, we read in the text that they took another attempt to flee from God. Verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's as if they were standing there in the garden terrified, They made these aprons and covered themselves up, and they're looking around, and suddenly they heard the voice of God coming, just as he always came in the cool of the day, the breezy part of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They were terrified. Their hearts were beating rapidly. They were filled with dread and fear at the approach of God. Why were they so afraid? Adam will soon tell God why. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. That's why he was afraid, because he was naked. Even though he had that fig leaf apron on now, he knew he was still naked before God. And he says, I was afraid. I was afraid. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? That's how he knew that he was naked. He ate of the tree. He knew that he was a sinner in the presence of a holy God. He knew that God was coming, and God knew, and God was going to punish him, and he was going to die under the wrath of God. So he ran with all of his might, together with his wife Eve, into the midst of the garden, and they hid behind the trees, trembling in terror, trying to escape. Once again, we no doubt smile a little bit at their folly because we understand how foolish and ridiculous it is to try to run away from God. Physically speaking, you can't do that. We know that. We know that God was not only present there in the garden where his voice was heard, but God is present 
everywhere in the world. We sang of that earlier from Psalm 139. Where can I go to escape from God? Up in heaven? Do I go up into the sky? No, he's there. What about down under the earth? No, he's there too. What if I go out into the midst of the sea? He's there. What if I go up into the mountains? He's there. He's everywhere. No matter where you go, you can fly to the farthest reaches of space and you will never escape from his searching and watching eye. God is everywhere present. And yet they tried to hide from him in the midst of the trees of the garden. But once again, that was simply the first and very primitive attempt of man to hide from God. How many ways have men attempted to hide from God since then? Think of the following. Since the fall of man into sin, man tries to hide from God by means of vain philosophy and religion. That's really an attempt to hide from God behind the trees of the garden. You see, the Apostle teaches us in Romans 1 that every single man knows that God exists. Every man knows that. Because the invisible things of God are revealed in the visible creation. Everyone knows deep down in his heart that God exists. God created this world. God is perfect and holy. God demands that I obey him and worship him. But Paul says in Romans 1, Sinful man suppresses that truth. That means he pushes it down, he holds it down, he doesn't want to believe it, he doesn't want it to be true, even though it keeps coming up again, he doesn't want to believe it, so he keeps pushing it down in his soul. He denies it. He says, no, that's not true. He's trying to hide from God by ignoring God and by replacing the truth with a lie. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He changes the truth into a lie. And he worships the creature more than the creator. In other words, men deny God and they come up with all kinds of ideas and philosophies to replace God because they are hiding from God. One of the trees that men hide behind is the tree of atheism. They deny that God is there. Why? Because they're afraid of him. They don't want to face him. They want to live their life as they please and not have to worry about death. So they hide behind that tree. They reason that God does not exist. They assure themselves that God is not there. Since we have never seen him, we have never heard him, there is no visible empirical proof that God exists. So he's not there. And if he's not there, then he won't punish me. And I don't have to be afraid of him. They're hiding behind a tree. A vain and foolish thing to do. There is the tree of deism. Those are those men who say, well, we have to admit there must be a God because this world can't have created itself. But we've never seen him. We've never detected him. So he must be far, far, far away. He must have created this world and then abandoned it. And if God is nowhere near, God doesn't really care about us, then God won't punish us either, and we don't have to worry about our sins or what happens to us when we die. That's a tree, and that's a vain attempt to hide. 
There's the tree of pantheism. Many, many people in our modern world say that, yes, we believe there must be a God, but God is probably just the same as the universe. God is not a person, and if God is not a person, if God is just a force or an energy, then we don't have to worry about him either. Then God doesn't really care what we do, how we live, and God will not punish us when we die. And together with these cluster of trees, man builds up and grows up other trees in the garden, like evolutionism, like the Big Bang Theory, like life began by chance and men evolved from apes, like humanism, which says we humans are all that there is. We control our own destiny. Those are all trees. Vain philosophies. And men try to hide behind those trees from the God they know is there, the God they know will punish them for their sins, but they don't want him to be there. But there are many other attempts and trees that man hides behind, aren't there? There is that whole forest or cluster of trees we might call the fantasy world. And how many people try to hide behind the trees of fantasies? They plunge themselves into all kinds of fantasies that whisk them away from this world and this reality and the concrete situation of their life. The fact that they are sinners before a holy God. They might enter that fantasy world in many different ways. They might try to get high on drugs and by the drugs transport themselves mentally into their fantasy world that doesn't exist. Or it might be that through books or films or virtual realities or through video games or through pornography or in some other manner. They try to transport themselves out of their reality into another reality that's not real. And all of it is an attempt, a vain attempt, to hide from God behind the trees of the garden, to hope that God will not catch me, God will not find me, and I can live how I please, and I don't have to be afraid when I die. How many people in our culture today hide behind the trees of distractions? Every weekend they go to the tavern or the bar or the club, and there in the midst of the smoke and the haze, the music, the loud, pounding music, and the shots and the drinks of beer, they try to lose themselves and hide themselves behind the trees of the garden. They try to distract themselves so that they don't think about God. They try to quiet their consciences. They try to drown their fears in the bottle, and they're hiding behind the trees from God. Other people flee to the casino and they try to hide from God through gambling and the slot machines, try to distract themselves from the God who they know is there. Or the comedy den, or the sports arena, or the television, the movies. All different kinds of ways people are trying to distract themselves from God. If I don't think about him, maybe he will just go away. If I focus on other things and other pleasures and good times... Maybe, maybe God won't find me. Maybe I will escape. And as soon as we list all of those things, we see that we are no different from the world by nature. 
because we do some of those very same things. And even when God sanctifies us and delivers us from some of those kinds of sinful habits and ways, then we still try to hide from God sometimes, don't we? We build up walls inside our hearts. And we try to hide from God behind those walls. We have committed a sin. A brother or sister confronts us with that sin and tells us about that sin, and we just deny it. I didn't do that. How dare you accuse me of doing that? I didn't do that. I don't do that. I'm not like that. By living in denial, we're hiding behind a tree, aren't we? Or our sins are brought to our attention, or they come to our own attention, but we excuse them. We justify them. We rationalize them. We come up with all kinds of crafty arguments to try to prove to ourselves and to others that it's not that bad, really. It's not really a sin. It's not really something to be concerned about. Or there's a good reason why I'm doing that. Sometimes we try to hide behind the tree of minimization. There's a tree called minimization, too, in that garden. And that's when we try to say that our sins are not that bad. We trivialize them. We make light of them. We joke about them. We act as if it's funny to walk in sin. And all of that is a vain attempt to hide from God behind the trees of the garden. We can see in this story, too, that when we do that, we're acting like little children. This is exactly what little children do. When they are caught doing something naughty that they're not supposed to do, what do they do? They first try to cover it up. And then they try to run away from mom and dad. They try to hide somewhere. And they hope that if they hide behind the couch, mom and dad won't find them doing that naughty thing that they shouldn't be doing. And we adults are doing that very same thing. When we try to hide, to excuse, to deny, to minimize, to justify all our sins. God allowed Adam and Eve to do this for a time. He allowed them to carry on this foolish practice. He wanted them to know how great their sins and miseries and foolishness is. But then God came. Verse 8 says, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Do you think God didn't know where Adam was? Do you think God was really wondering? Do you think God couldn't see him hiding behind those trees? God knew exactly where Adam was. But God said, Where art thou? And notice that God approached him first. Adam and Eve ran away. But God came after them. There we see refuted the whole of Arminianism, which says that man has to first come to God. Man has to first seek God. Man has to first receive God. No. Man flees away from God. If man has to act first, then man will just stay hiding behind the trees of the garden. That's what we would do too. If we had to be first... We would be lost forever. 
We don't want to be found by nature. We want to hide behind those trees. We want to live in those sins and not suffer the punishment. God was first. God came after them. God said, where art thou? Where art thou? And in that brief question, we see the infinite grace and mercy of God. He came to seek and to save the lost, Jesus said. That's the heart of God. He came to seek and to save the lost. The lost, miserable, poor, wretched sinners, all caught up in this confusion and self-deceit, hiding, covering, foolish. God comes and says, where are you? Once again, our Belgic Confession says in Article 17, we believe that our most gracious God in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into temporal and eternal death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence, promising him that he would give his son who would be made of a woman to bruise the head of the serpent and would make him happy. The Belgic Confession is referring to this when it says, God was pleased to seek and comfort him. There is the grace of God. God says to you today in the preaching of his word, he says to you, each of you, and to me today, where are you? Where are you? Not anyone else in this room, but God speaks to you personally and says, Where are you? Are you hiding behind those fig leaves, trembling behind those trees, trying to hide from me and escape from me, trying to continue in your sin? And God says, Come out of those trees. Confess your sins. Trust in my Son. And what we know is far better than what Adam and Eve knew at that time. We know that God has kept his promise. God has sent his Son into the world. He has died on the cross for our sins, shed his blood in his love and mercy for you. God says, come to him. Trust in him. Be done with your sins. Confess your sins. Come out from behind those trees. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to ask that question to every man on the judgment day. Where are you? And those who are not clinging to Christ by faith, but still clinging to their fig leaves, and trying to hide behind those trees, will perish. What will our answer be on that judgment day? Where are you? Apart from the grace of God, we can only give the miserable answer of Adam and Eve that day. The answer of Adam was, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, 
Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And Adam said, The woman that thou gavest to me. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And he shifted the blame to his wife. That's what we do, isn't it, when we are cornered? Apart from the grace of God, I mean. When God corners us and says, where are you? Where are you today? Apart from the grace of God, we cling to those sins. We don't want to let them go. And so we desperately look for any other route that we can squirm out of it. And we say, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's not my fault. You can't blame me for it. There were circumstances, you see. There's a story. There's a context there. There's a background here. I didn't just go and pluck the fruit and eat it. I'm not that stupid and foolish. No, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I did eat. You have to hold her accountable. It's her fault, not my fault. I wouldn't have done that. There too. God is allowing man to do that, to show the depths of our depravity apart from his grace. That's the depths of our depravity. We turn on each other. We throw each other under the bus. Whereas they stood together in their sin, they fled together in their sin, they covered themselves together, they were partners in crime. Now when Adam is cornered, he turns on his wife. It's her fault. And there we see that the natural man not only hates God, but hates the neighbor as well. The precious gift that God had given to Adam, his precious beloved wife. The woman, it's her fault. There we see the intense inherent selfishness, stubbornness, and pride of our wicked nature. What does that have to do with it? It's true, of course. The woman brought the fruit to him. That's true. What he says is true. But what does that have to do with it? You sinned. You ate it. You did it. That's what God asked you. Did you eat it? And he should have said, I ate it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I sinned against thee. I sinned against thee, O Lord. But God allowed him to hold to that position for just a moment. He didn't hold him to account, did he? He turned to the woman and said, What is this that thou hast done? And we can feel the piercing nature of that question, can't we? That question pierces right to the depths of the soul. What have you done? You have taken the fruit and given it to your husband to eat. You have enticed your husband to sin. What have you done? She was also cornered. And what did she do when cornered? 
Uh, the serpent, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. You can't hold me accountable for it. It's the serpent, the serpent, the snake. Oh, he's a crafty tempter. He deceived me. He beguiled me. I couldn't help it. If the devil wasn't there, I wouldn't have done it. You can't hold me responsible for that. She should have humbled herself and confessed, I'm sorry, I've sinned and broken thy commandment. And what we see in both of those instances of shifting of the blame is that ultimately they're shifting the blame to God. The woman that thou gavest to be with me. You see, the woman that you gave to me, it's your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't have sinned. And Eve, the serpent that God created, God created that serpent. If you hadn't created that serpent, he wouldn't have beguiled me, and I wouldn't have sinned. It's your fault, God. That's the deepest depth of our depravity, that we would dare to point the finger at God as if he is responsible for our sin. Blame shifting, as you can see, is a wicked and selfish tactic as old as time. Little children don't do that, don't they? When they're caught doing something wrong, well, my sister made me do it, or my brother made me do it. It's really their fault. You can't blame me for it. Do we husbands ever do that in our marriages? It's my wife's fault. She always does this, or she never does that. You can't blame me for the things that I do. It's her fault. If she wasn't that way, I wouldn't do those things. And wives, do we ever do this? The devil, or some other individual, or some other circumstance in my life. If that circumstance wasn't there, then I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do it. You can't hold me responsible. That's the way we are by nature. God wanted to expose that. That's why he let them go on in these foolish, ridiculous behavior. But then God comes and says, No, you are at fault for your sin. Humble yourself, repent, confess your sin fully, and flee to Christ for forgiveness. But we cannot do that of our own strength. God has to come and give us the grace to do that. That's what we find in this story. That's what we find in the rest of the chapter. God comes to them with the glorious promise of the gospel. And then what does God do? Verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. They made fig leaf coverings. God took away those foolish fig leaf coverings 
and he killed two animals, the first animals to die. He shed their blood instead of Adam and Eve's blood. And he took the skins of those animals and wrapped them around their naked bodies to cover them. He was forgiving them for the sake of Christ, who would shed his blood for us on the cross. Whereas they foolishly and wickedly blamed each other, God took the blame and he put it on Christ. That blame that we try to pin on each other, God has taken that blame and he has put it on Christ. Christ has taken it upon himself. Christ became sin for us who knew no sin. He took the blame for us. And now will we blame each other? Or will we humbly confess and flee to Christ to find forgiveness in him? And then we go forth in such joy and gratitude that we hate our sins We flee not from God, but we flee from our sins. We confess and no longer deny. No more excuses. No more minimizing. No more justifying, hiding, and fleeing. But we repent. And we turn. And we strive to live a new and godly life. May God grant that to us. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word which pierces us. In our regenerated selves, we love that piercing. We want to have that gracious word to prick our hearts, to humble us. Because, Father, we do hate our sins. And we thank thee for that gift of thy grace, that we hate our sins. We pray now that thou would work in us wisdom, humility, grace, and mercy that we might come more and more to forsake our sins, to repent of our sins, and to find full and free forgiveness in the